I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter 16. And I want to read in your hearing the first four verses. John 16, verse 1 to verse 4, where our Lord says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. There's a lot of things that enter into becoming or being good readers of the Bible. Persistence is something absolutely necessary to continue on in our patterns of Bible reading, to really get a good grasp of the teaching of God's Word and to really understand uh, something of the whole flow of biblical narrative. If we're not persistent readers, we'll just never arrive there. Sunday meetings is good to get something of clear teaching about many things, but there's really no substitute uh, for I shouldn't say that because actually public teaching can compensate a great deal. But we have this opportunity with Bibles in our own hands, Bibles that we can read, Bibles we can listen to on tape and um, glean a, a, a good understanding of what Scripture teaches. And so persistence is an important issue. Teachability is another issue. All the persistence in the world won't do us any good if we don't have a teachable spirit in coming to the Word of God. And then also a pattern of inquiry, of um, inquiring about the scriptures. Why is this here in the way that it is? Why is this said in the way that it is? How does this gospel differ from the other gospels? These are all questions that ought to be raised in our minds when we read the scriptures. So persistence, inquiry, teachability are all important aspects. But there's another thing that I think Evangelical Christians don't give much play to, and we should. And that's the idea of a sanctified imagination. It's to come to the scriptures with a sanctified imagination. Uh, a lot of times I think Bible-believing Christians think that imagination is the devil's work. Because the Bible speaks of vain imaginations. It speaks of the sort of imaginations that are given over to a sinful practice. But the imagination is given by God. And when we read the scriptures, we read words on paper without the slightest clue as to how those words were actually heard by the original hearers, or the situation in which those words were spoken into. We don't see facial expressions. We don't uh, get the sense of the reaction of the hearers of Jesus when he's speaking to them, the things that Jesus himself saw and noted when he moves from one section to another or uh, gives uh, statements um, that uh, we just don't know why. why. Because we weren't there and we cannot hear with the, uh, 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 and see uh, the way the original hearers and witnesses of Jesus and his words were able to. But we do have imaginations, folks. And we could use our imaginations in a, in a sanctified way to paint a picture that would closely approximate what 
we would think would warrant our Lord speaking in the way that he does. And I say that because when we come to chapter 16 in verse 1, Jesus himself reflects upon what he has been teaching. He says, I have said all these things to you. He concludes in verse 4, I have said these things to you. Jesus is reflecting upon the things that he has said to his people. And we might scratch our heads and say, why at this point does Jesus say the things that he has said? And the idea probably is that our Lord sensed there was something in the eyes of the disciples, something in the way they reacted to his words that warranted this. Maybe they were looking at one another and saying, why is he telling us about this? Why is he saying to us, if the world hates you, what does it have to do with today? What does it have to do with our present situation? The world's not really hating on us, at least not openly, not overtly. We feel pretty secure in the way the world views us. Why is he going down that road? Why is he speaking of these things that he is saying? And so Jesus at that point says, these things I've said to you, there's a reason for it. There's a reason I'm speaking these words to you. The point of it all is that our Lord assigns his reason in the words that end verse 1. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Verse 4, I've said these things to you that when their hour comes you may remember that I told them to you. Everything really banks upon his disciples hearing these words. Because there's going to be things that are going to happen that they at this point don't anticipate happening. There are things that are going to happen that they're in this point doesn't fit in with their whole eschatological program and hope. They have this hope that they're going to go up and defeat the Romans. They're going to put down the enemies of God and they're going to be restoring the Davidic kingdom in the person of the Davidic king himself, our Lord Jesus, the son of David. They're thinking of triumph. They're thinking of victory. They're not thinking of being put out of synagogues. They're not thinking of people killing them. They're not thinking of any of this. But Jesus knows this is what will be. And so he speaks these words for the very end that they would not fall away. Now the word that's used to fall away is the word that actually is often translated to stumble. To stumble at something. And the word itself, this Greek word scandalon, um, we may well understand by the fact that it comes into usage in the English language in words like scandal. What does it mean to fall away? Well, what happens when uh, an athlete who you rooted for, Barry Bonds, if anyone was a San Francisco Giant fan back in the days when Barry Bonds was hitting home runs out of Candlestick Park, maybe he was your hero. You looked up to Barry Bonds, and then you found out about the Balco scandal. That was the scandal in which the performance-enhancing drugs were being administered to athletes like Barry Bonds. And they all got into legal trouble as a result of it. And of course, the guy lied continually about what he did. And suddenly, this hero, now the home runs that went out of 
Candlestick Park with such regularity were the result of performance-enhancing drugs. And the fact is, this guy's a liar. This guy got put into prison for a time for being a liar, lying to the FBI and the people who were investigating the scandal. It's a scandal. And what does a scandal do? A scandal brings you to lose your confidence, your faith, your belief in the people that are involved in the scandal. That's why Barry Bonds isn't in the Hall of Fame. Because people got disappointed and disillusioned and they don't believe that his record of home runs was legitimate because he took performance-enhancing drugs. What happens to a, a political leader who gets caught, uh, uh, again, in an adulterous relationship or gets caught in uh, lining his own pockets with public money, engaging in graft and bribery and the rest, well, you don't vote for them again. You applaud it when they resign from their office. Why? You've lost faith in them. You don't believe in them any longer. They're not the people they presented themselves to be. And so we're scandalized by these people. Now, you wouldn't get scandalized if you heard that a rock star was caught in an extramarital affair. That's something that goes, you would think, with the territory of what they do. It may be gossip, but you're not scandalized by it. You're scandalized by something that someone you respect, a minister of the gospel, a statesman, a community leader, is caught doing something unethical, immoral. That's a scandal. You lose your confidence in the one who is caught in a scandal. And Jesus is telling his disciples, he has said these things to them, that they would not lose their confidence in him. You see, up to this point, this trouble that Jesus is speaking about will, will come hasn't really been a matter of concern. Jesus has been with them. Jesus has kept them free from danger. He's kept them free from harm. And as long as Jesus was among them, people might plot against them. People might criticize them. But they could not harm them. Jesus was with them. And Jesus was their protector. Jesus would lead them out of the way of danger, and Jesus would keep them from harm. But now, our Lord himself is not kept from harm. Our Lord himself is about to be betrayed. Our Lord himself is about to be arrested. Our Lord himself is about to be tried, convicted, and executed. He is going away from them. Going to the cross, and though he would, in resurrection, power and glory appear among them for 40 days after the resurrection, he would go to the Father, and they would be left defenseless. In fact, after the cross, it would be his death and his sufferings that would become the example. Christ suffered for us, Peter says, that we should follow in his steps. Suffering and death would not be something unusual. It would be something quite common among the people of God. So Jesus is preparing his people for this future. This future in which sufferings would be common. In which they would be called upon to suffer for his name's sake. If the world hates you, he says, you know that has hated me before you. And if these words were not spoken to them, 
if this preparation was not given to them, and the events of suffering would then occur, and they thought, well, Jesus says, if you're a Christian, everything will be great and fine. Health and wealth and prosperity will come your way in abundance. God's people are not supposed to suffer. And if they suffer, it's the result of a lack of faith. What's happening then? If that's your idea, if that's your understanding of the Christian faith, you're being set up for a fall. You're being set up to lose your confidence in Jesus when they put you out of the synagogues. When they put you on trial as a Christian and convict you and execute you. Jesus says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. I said these things to you that when their hour comes, you remember, I told them to you. I told you they would hate you. I told you they would persecute you as they persecuted me. They would oppose you as they have opposed me. This is something that goes with the territory of being a Christian. It's not unusual. It's not strange. It's not something out of the blue. It doesn't mean I'm not the Lord of glory, but I am the Lord of glory because I told you these things would occur. I've told you these things to keep you from being scandalized and falling away from me and losing your confidence in me. What are the things that Jesus says will happen to them? He's given them the reason. He said these things. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. I've said these things to you that when that hour comes, you remember that I told them to you. Now, what are actually the things that he says will happen to them? Look at it. He says, first of all, they will put you out of the synagogues. Now we've had something of an anticipation of this earlier. Remember in John chapter 9, when, when Jesus healed the blind man, and we read about the Pharisees, they've already determined that anyone who should believe in him would be put out of the synagogue. And they cast the blind man out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. They excommunicated him from the fellowship of the synagogue, from being identified with the people of his nation who were synagogue members and synagogue attendees. Jesus says that's what they're going to continue to do. Don't think that they did to the blind man is something that they're going to stop doing. They're going to continue to do that sort of thing. They're going to put you into prison. They're going to flog you. They're going to threaten you, even as we see them doing in the book of Acts. Not only so, it won't end there. That's not the worst thing. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now again, that's precisely what they thought when they sought to kill Jesus. They thought they were serving God. Remember the high priest is expedient that one man should die and not the whole nation be destroyed. They think they're preserving their nation. They're looking to keep their religion pure from what they think is this false Messiah. They're looking to remove what they think is an offense from their nation in the person of Jesus. They had their reasons. And all their reasons, interestingly enough, were clothed in the mantle of religiosity. They thought in the killing of Jesus they were serving God. 
And they weren't going to stop thinking that way. Paul thought he was serving God when he consented to the stoning of Stephen and took his place receiving the outer garments of those who picked up stones and killed that servant of God. He thought he was serving God. He was zealous in the service of God to go to even foreign cities and to round up those that called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. He thought that was the service of his God, the service of the God of the Old Covenant. He didn't see it as a crime, but a virtue, an aspect of godliness. The fact is, some of humanity's worst crimes have been done in the name of religion. People think they're serving God when they fly airplanes into buildings. Allah Akbar. Great is Allah. They cry as they're putting people to death and committing the act of suicidal madness themselves. They think they're doing this in the service of God. But not just Islamists, Christian nationalists. All manner of violence throughout the history of the church has been committed by think people thinking they're doing these things in the service of God. The Protestant martyrs were put to death at the stake while prayers were being prayed by clergymen and sermons being preached by those who were clergymen putting saints of God to death. I'll tell you something they don't know, but we know. True religion rejects all forms of religious violence. Violence is never the answer to make the church pure. Violence is never the answer to discipline transgressors. Violence is never the answer to make the church thrive and grow. We've not been given a sword. Jesus says, put up your sword. They that take the sword will perish by the sword. Our weapons of warfare are mighty through God. For the casting down of strongholds. They're the arguments of truth. They're the proclamation of the witness of the gospel. What Christ is, what God has done in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing to us our trespasses. We triumph through a message. We triumph through the work of a crucified and a risen Savior who sends his people upon a mission that will be successful, for he will ensure its success. I will build my church, he declares, against which the gates of Hades will not prevail. And yet these false religionists, these zealots, employ violence against the people of God. And Jesus does not say, we'll return fire with fire. Jesus does not say, as they do to you, so do to them. No, that's not the ethic of the kingdom. We're still called to love our enemies. We're still called to pray for our persecutors. We're still called to be faithful in the midst of the wicked violence and religious 
outrages that people engage in as those who possess our souls with confidence in the God whom we can commit our souls to in the reality that not even death, not even persecuting zeal could ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we've looked at what Jesus says, why Jesus says he speaks these words. We've looked at the things that people will do that bring him to speak these words. And now the question should be in our minds, why? Why do people commit such outrageous acts of criminal religious violence? The answer that Jesus gives in the words of verse 3 is they do what they do out of ignorance. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They're ignorant of the God who is true and living. They're dwelling in the darkness and ignorance of their hearts. And so their hearts are filled with bitterness and hate. Their hearts are filled with anger. And the reality of Islamic violence against other people is that they think they have a justification and a right to hate in the name of Allah. To execute the anger of God against Allah's enemies. And when that stuff appears among professing Christians, whether it's Catholics persecuting Protestants or Protestants returning the favor, there's a deep enmity in the heart of people that says we want to win. We want to emerge victorious, not virtuous, but victorious. And so we'll oppose anyone with a kind of zeal that burns in anger against others and not a heart that burns with zealous love for God and others that we're called to. It is an interesting, interesting thing. I mentioned this in the Sunday school, in the adult Sunday school, is that the same word that's used in Scripture for zeal is also used for jealousy. It means the same thing. The difference is, what are you, ang- what are you zealous for? And what are you jealous about? That determines whether it's virtuous or, or wicked. And there's a kind of wicked zeal that Paul says persecutors engage in when he says in Romans chapter 10 that the, Jewish, the Jews have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Their lack of the knowledge of God brings them to have a zeal for a religious position, a religious idea, idea a religious ideology in which they're determined to adhere to it so that that ideology will triumph over all others by whatever means we can employ. And they allow their hearts to be filled with bitterness. There was nothing of virtue in what they did to Jesus. When they cried, crucify him, crucify him, their hearts were filled with hate. Their hearts were filled with anger. Their hearts were filled with bitterness. They were riled up and stirred up by the multitude to be filled with anger. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before. It hated you. They hated me without a cause, Jesus says. There's a kind of zeal, if it's mixed with hatred, it is not godly zeal. It is worldly zeal. It is sinful zeal. It is a zeal that is not according to knowledge. The knowledge of God should bring us the knowledge of a God who loves his enemies. 
a God who makes provision for those who are wretched and wicked and rebellious and self-centered and evil. And yet God's love still extends to us through the gospel. And when we come to embrace that love, as Paul did when he was a persecutor, filled with persecuting zeal against the enemies of God, he thought, filled with hatred to Christians, hatred to the name of Christ, wanted to see the name of Christ obliterated from the earth. Then God came in His grace and showed Him His mercy and brought Him to bow the knee of allegiance to King Jesus. Then Paul's zeal for Christ was, it knew no limits, it it knew no bounds. But it was never mixed with hatred ever again. It was directed by love. It was directed by a persevering interest and pursuing his gospel call in the face of wicked opposition, in the face of stoning and imprisonment and gospel rejection and hatred on every hand Enemies from his own nation. Enemies from the Gentiles. Everybody turned against him. And yet he never had his own heart poisoned by bitterness and hatred. Paul could say, I did these things because I did not know the Father nor Jesus. And they do not they still do these things because they have not known the Father nor Jesus. It is their ignorance, an ignorance that most of us once shared, an ignorance that most of us were once enveloped by. And yet the grace of the gospel has come to bring us the knowledge of the Father and the knowledge of Jesus a knowledge we didn't reserve, deserve to receive a knowledge we never merited a knowledge that God could have just simply denied us and turned us away and rejected us and disdained us but he did not he loved us being zealous For the honor of God is never to be confused with being zealous or jealous for our own interests. We too easily confuse the interests of God with our own interests, God's desires with our desires, and hence our purported zeal for God is just a rivalry for our own sect, our own theological beliefs. And so we set our enmity upon the Catholics and the Arminians and the liberals and the, everybody else in the world that we think we have a right to hate because they fall short of the biblical standard. Yes, they fall short of the biblical standard in ignorance. They do not know God. They do not know Christ. And our great desire is that they would know God and know Christ. We once didn't know Him. We once lived in ignorance. We once lived in self Interest. It's no surprise that they do. They're the world. But our great hunger should be that they would come to know God and that they would know, come to know Christ. Every one of those people that you want to hate 
and feel bitter towards because they don't, don't stand in the truth are potential standers in the truth. They potentially are those who will come to stand in the truth as we once did not stand in the truth and now do. See, zeal for God should direct us to prayer for their conversion. Zeal for God should direct us to faithfulness in our witness. Zeal to God should direct us to acts of righteousness and obedience to God's revealed will, to let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Zeal for God should lead us to walk in the power and grace of the Holy Spirit and not in the course of our own carnal and wicked hearts. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that you should not fall away, you'd not be scandalized. And I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. Seems to be the idea here is that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. For these disciples to have thought that service to God would lead to thrones and dominion and power and material wealth lives of endless prosperity and peace would simply have been to set them up for a very severe fall. If that's what they believed when the persecution of the world, when their hour comes, would bring them to question the word of Jesus. Would bring them to question the faithfulness of Jesus. The reality is persecution comes to the church often not as an unmixed curse. It oftentimes comes as a blessing because it's where the church is persecuted. Oftentimes the church begins to thrive. The church begins to leave its self-trust and its self-confidence and to begin to trust in the living God who raises the dead. Read 2 Corinthians. Paul says he had the sentence of death in himself that he might learn to trust Not in himself, but in God who raises the dead. It's out of death, it's out of the blood of the martyrs that the seed of the church is found. I have Luke 22 and verse 53 here, but my printer quit at that point, so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 22, 53, because I don't have it here but I seem to have thought it pertains to what I'm talking about. So in Luke 22, in verse 53, Jesus is being arrested. He's betrayed by Judas. And uh, one of the... One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his right ear. Jesus in verse 51 says, No more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders, Who has come out against him? I'm sorry, who had come out against him? He said, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. 
And Jesus doesn't resist their hour and the power of darkness with greater darkness. He faces their hour and the power of darkness with the greater light of faithfully submitting to the will of his Father, faithfully embracing the mission he was sent to do, submitting to his captors, submitting to their judgment, and in so doing, bringing the judgment of the world and bringing the salvation of the world to bear through his death and his resurrection. And his people are called similarly in the face of their hour. Jesus uses that word again with regard to his disciples in 16.4. He says, I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, their hour will come as it came to me. And you are to replicate my actions. Not in fighting the power of darkness with greater darkness, but embracing the hour of darkness with the light of of gospel truth that brings us in the face of death to know that death is not the last word, that death will lead to the resurrection of life. Well, brethren, as we think of this brief passage in the first four verses of chapter 16, I got a couple of takeaways for you this morning. Uh, You think in this passage, there should be each of us having something of a lesson to be learned about teaching that we receive from the Word of God. I said, to be good Bible readers, we need to have imagination. We also need to have patience. We also need to have patience. Sometimes people come to church Sunday after Sunday, and their main concern is that the preacher will tell them something that will enter into their experience that they're going through right now, at this moment, with some word of consolation and comfort and cheer and benefit that they can immediately apply to what they're going through right now. If you've come with that in your mind and you have issues that you're facing, then I'm not addressed at all with any words that I've uttered this morning. You might think, well, this has been an exercise in stupidity or futility. What did I get? I came to church, I got nothing. But you see, the point is, Jesus speaks these words to his disciples with reference to future things that they've not anticipated, that they don't know this is going to happen to them. And yet Jesus knows, and his word is a suitable word, not just for what we're going through at the present time. Don't read the Bible on that basis, searching the scriptures for something that meets your present need at the present hour. You need also to be forewarned about things to come that you don't have any idea might be coming up. And yet God knows. And God's given words that are matters not just of medicine to cure you of the present disease, but medicine to prepare you for the diseases that will come. Preventative medicine. In the light of things that are to come. I say these things to you to keep you from future harm. I say these things to you to keep you from the dangers that will meet you somewhere down the road. So come to church ready to hear not just what will meet the immediate need of the hour. It's not irrelevant what God says about the future. You might not see it now. You might not know it now. But you need it to hear it. You need to know it. Because hours of persecution will come. That's not your present experience. Everything's fine. Everything's 
Everyone's healthy. No one's suffering. There's no difficulty. Nothing on the horizon. But how do you know what a day will bring? How do you know what tomorrow will bring? Who on September 10th knew that September 11th would come? You just don't know. And God's word is a word that prepares us for the future as well as meets the needs of the present hour. But then the second thing I'd like to say is that there's a lesson also here about the truth of discipleship. Not only teaching from God, but the truth of discipleship. The reality of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Does it mean to be protected and immune from all the dangers, hardships, troubles of the world? I think some people think that this is exactly what it means. And sometimes the gospel gets presented in that way. Come to Jesus and all your problems are over. Come to Jesus and there's happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Everything's wonderful. Just come to Jesus. I grant you everything's great when you come to Jesus, but Jesus ministers to us in the real world. And Jesus meets us in the realities that will face us in the real world. And the real world is still a fallen world. It's not a... It's not a restored world yet. It's not a world in which you won't get cast out of the fellowship of other people. We'll say, because you're a Christian, I don't want anything to do with you. It's not a world in which you're guaranteed to keep your job and people find out you won't work on Sundays or you won't do things that are disreputable or things your conscience says you can't do in your job. They'll fire you. They'll fire you. This will happen to you. Christians will be discriminated against. And we're not the first generation to experience it, believe it or not. We might think it's a horrible thing that they're doing this to Christians. Because Christians in some way own the nation and we own the world and they shouldn't be doing this to us. No, Christians have never seen it that way. Christians always know the world is the world and the world will do the things the world does. And we're called upon in the face of what the world does against us to glorify God. The reality about discipleship is it's a, it's a path of hardship. It's a path of trouble. It's a pathway often of suffering. Again, just read 2 Corinthians. Just read Paul's account of his hardships. Read the book of Acts. Read the life of Jeremiah. Read the prophets of the Old Testament. It's never the case that to be following the Lord in fidelity means that everything is going to go exactly as we want. And everything is going to be just right. I don't know where that lie came into the church, but it's been in the church. It's been presented to me many times by people. And I've had to just tell them, that's not what scripture tells us we're not taught that at all that we're just going to go from one good thing to another good thing to another good thing to another good thing and then we get heaven at last no, that's just not how it goes it's in the midst of suffering we come to know the reality of his presence with us in the storm in the floods in the fires and then finally this though, a lesson about tactics the tactics we use. And again, I'm just picking up on some of the things I said last week. But again, it's not the tactics of the world. We fight the world with the gospel. We fight the world with prayer. We fight the world with humility. We fight the world 
with a completely different spirit than the world fights us with. They will put you out of the synagogues and out of the synagogues you will go. They'll think they're doing service to God when they kill you and kill you they will. They will act in their ignorance. They will act in their arrogance. They will act in their heartlessness. But don't think that something unexpected has come upon you. You've been forewarned these things will come. And you to meet those things that will come with faith and faithfulness. With a heart that submits to the will of God and a heart that even in the midst of the trials and troubles of this life seeks to bless and not curse. Seeks to teach and not turn against. Seeks to be, bear faithful witness and not be filled with curses against those who are our enemies. Jesus is teaching his people how to respond to suffering. And it's a lesson we need to learn. May God be pleased to hear, help us to hear his word and to benefit from it. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that we have been forewarned in Scripture for all the eventualities that are likely to come our way. And we're thankful that you do not speak to us with just telling us what we want to hear. You tell us what we need to hear. We're thankful for what we hear in your word, even in this passage today. And we pray that we would not be filled with the world's bitterness, with the world's enmity, with the world's hatred, but baptize our hearts with gospel love. Baptize our hearts with a pity to the world, towards the world in their ignorance, in their failure to know you, in their, their kept being captive by sin that takes them captive at, their, at, at its will. That, Lord, Lord, we bless you. We're liberated to know you, to serve you, to love you, and to have our lives mean something for the furtherance of the gospel and to a testimony that is faithful. So we pray that you'd help us to learn these things, help us to... It's privilege, understand our privileges and to live in the light of them and that whatever life will bring our way, we might be faithful before you to walk in the ways of the, of the righteous, to walk in conformity to our Lord Jesus, to walk in conformity to his mind and his will. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your word. We ask you to bless your people as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.